Hello, everybody. Happy spring. You are listening to the Eyes Up Life podcast with Ben Granis. We are here covering distracted driving, talking to people about their lives, and hopefully saving lives in the process. Eyes Up started as a 7,000-mile bike ride that I did by myself around the United States to raise awareness for distracted driving and to promote digital wellness. I wrapped that up in September of 2022, and now I am continuing the mission to make our roads safer, help people live happier lives by focusing on what's inside and right in front of them. In the fall, after I finished riding my bike, I drove around the United States in a truck partnered with Maxxis Tires to interview a bunch of their sponsored athletes and affiliates. And now I am sharing the full conversations with those folks in a podcast format. You can check out the shorter video version of our conversation by going to Eyes Up Ride on Instagram or Maxxis Tires on Instagram or Maxxis Tires on YouTube. They are being released every two weeks, as are these podcasts, videos on Wednesday, followed by the full conversation in podcast format on Fridays. I can't believe that we are already into our seventh episode. That means we are about one-third through this rollout period, and time is just flying by. Today, I am very excited to share my conversation I had with Jeff Proctor in Southern California. Jeff kindly sat down with me during a busy time for him. He was prepping to head out for a desert race. Uh, That is what he does for a living. He races desert off-road with Honda and Maxxis. If you don't know what that is, that is okay. Jeff does a great job explaining that in the video. I personally am nowhere near... uh, an expert on this topic, so I'm not going to pretend because that would be lame. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Jeff back in early November. Jeff is just such a nice guy, a pleasant person to talk to, and really generous with his time on an incredibly busy day. So enjoy, and we'll talk to you afterwards. Stick around. Hello, I'm Jeff Proctor, uh, team principal and driver for Honda Factory Ridgeline Racing, and I'm from Los Angeles. Sweet. So walk me, walk us and me through what your career is, what your sport is. I know what sport you're in, but just like kind of explain what, what, what it's like. Yeah, so we're, we participate in endurance off-road racing. Um, it's uh, exciting. Um, it's adventurous. Off-road racing, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. It's uh, endurance off-road racing. We race through the middle of nowhere in Mexico and the western United States. Um, we have you know, 35 inches of suspension travel that we go over some of the gnarliest terrain in the world. And um, we use a Honda 3.5 liter V6 twin turbo to, to do it. Uh, we're grateful to be a part of the Honda factory racing program. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting. How did you get into the off-road world? Like, what, what, when did when did this happen, and how? 
Yeah, so I, I grew up racing motocross, um, you know, on the local circuit here in California, and I was always passionate about off-road motorsports. And from motocross, I transitioned into racing um, motorcycles and endurance races. And from two wheels, they always say with age comes cage. And uh, at one point, you know, uh, I made a transition from two wheels into four wheels and was fortunate enough to, to link up with Honda and uh, put together the Ridgeline program. And the Ridgeline program came to, came to pass when the um, Gen 2 Ridgeline was first launched at SEMA. And we put together a concept vehicle that was actually a race truck and then we went and raced it after the launch. And uh, now here we are, uh, fortunately in our ninth Baja 1000, we're leaving uh, this week for the Baja 1000 and it'll be our ninth time representing uh, American Honda. What is SEMA? Is that like a, an auto show? Yeah, SEMA is specialty equipment manufacturing. Um, so it's any, any type of aftermarket product. Uh, it's usually used uh, in the auto industry to um, launch or announce a new product, an exciting product, something new that anybody that's in uh, the auto industry uh, you know, uses. So when you're doing motocross, were you professional at that point, or did you not go pro until you started doing off-road? Yeah, so I was not professional. Um, I was actually an amateur motocross racer. Uh, it was just a passion of mine. I had a day job, um, and I always had dreams of building a professional you know, team, whether running it or racing it. And uh, it was just one of those things where you know, I feel incredibly blessed and fortunate that I was able to take a dream and turn it into reality and meet the right people at the right time and everything kind of came to fruition and you know now we're looking back on on nine years of this professional program so was it when did, what year was it that you started uh, actually racing uh, off-road so I started racing off-road I believe I started in 2000 so my first four-wheel off-road race was in 2006 um, and then I kind of did it off and on while I was still racing bikes. And then I went to four wheels full time in 2012 and then launched the Honda program in 2015. Cool. So are there, so when you say you launched the Honda program, what does that, what does that actually mean? Uh, it means that we were able to partner with a major manufacturer um, and put together a, a professional off-road effort and bring it to um, our style of racing. So are you like the Honda racer for four-wheel off-road, or are there others as well? Uh, so, so our team actually represents all of Honda four-wheel motorsports. So it starts with the Honda Ridgeline, which I race, and then we also have a team of Honda Talents from the Power Sports division uh, that we have that Zach Sizelove, Elias Hanna, Ethan Ebert race under our umbrella as well. So we have a four-car team. And uh, we are Honda's off-road racing effort. Cool. So what's it, what's it been like for you since 2006 when you started this? Like what's been sort of like the, the track in your career? Did you find success early or has it kind of taken some time to get your footing? Um, off-road racing is a really challenging sport. Um, there's typically about a 50% attrition rate at every race that we enter, which means that if you start the race, there's a strong possibility that you're not gonna be able to finish the race. A lot of people get into off-road racing just to finish these races. It's a huge accomplishment just to finish. Um, I'm a very competitive person, I always have been, and we don't wanna take a, a green flag and start a race unless we're, we're prepared as a team, as a race vehicle, and as a driver to go out and win that race. 
And that's kind of the mindset that we took into off-road racing. And we were fortunate enough to have some early success, um, followed by um, some humbling experiences with some mechanical issues that we fought through. And then we overcome that from an engineering standpoint to some additional success. And uh, it's been a, a wild ride. It's, it's, it's not a, a linear success path. It's, you know, we had some early success, had our challenges, more success, challenges. Um, last year we had the best year of, of my career. We won, um, the major race, the ball 1000 and three other major races out of five, uh, and a, and a podium in the, in the one race that we didn't win. Um, and then follow this year, we've had, we've had mechanical failures and DNFs and, you know, you're always trying to push that envelope with your race vehicle. You're always trying to make changes to make it faster, more competitive. And sometimes when you push that envelope, the envelope breaks. And unfortunately, that's the season that we've had this year. Um, but it's, it's super challenging. And that's what keeps us going back year after year is that every year, every race course is a new challenge. It's not like we're going to the Daytona 500. It's the same left turn every year. Every year, the course changes. Every year, it's a new challenge. And um, myself and our entire team is always prepared for that challenge. So you're about to go to the Baja 1000 mm -hmm. tomorrow. Um, walk, I, I don't really know much about the race. So walk me through like what, since you've done it a bunch of times, what the experience is like when you get there, what the actual racing is like, like how long are you racing? Yep. Uh, Baja 1000 um, is such an incredible race. It has a rich, rich history. Um, it's been around for over 55 years, um, and a lot of automobile manufacturers have used it as a test of durability to see if they can get from Ensenada to La Paz or Cabo. Um, if you think of um, you know, soccer being such uh, a huge sport in mainland Mexico, on the Baja Peninsula in Mexico, off-road racing is the sport of Baja. And they shut down schools and people come from all over to be a part of this rich racing history in Baja. Um, for us, we love it down there. It has the most challenging race courses. You never know what you're going to encounter from, uh, you know, everybody talks about there's booby traps. Um, it's the Wild West and that's part of the thrill. Um, you could be driving along on the race course and there could be a family of 10 with a campfire in the middle of the course, redirecting you into a, a swamp pit that they created just to create chaos in the race course. And you have to be ready for that. You have to recognize what they're trying to do. And you think that they're trying to direct you around something that could save your life. And no, it's actually, they're gonna direct you off a cliff. I'm not saying that, that the Baja people are bad. I'm saying we love them, they're great, but this is some of the thrill and adventure that we're going to encounter and we have to be on our toes and on our game for the entire race when we talk about you know how long the baja uh race lasts it's a thousand miles point to point it's the longest off-road race in the world consecutive point to point race um, it can take us anywhere from 24 to 30 hours to complete our our team of of crew members can be up for 40 hours straight it's a test of mental fortitude. It's a test of endurance uh, on your body. It's a test of, of physicality. It's, it's a test of everything. And it takes everything and 
and all of my being as a driver, my navigator, and all of our crew to get to that finish line, let alone have success down there. And I always talk to people that the Baja 1000 is about linking a thousand different decisions together over 24 hours, and they all have to go perfect in order to get to the finish line. And that's what it takes, and that's what keeps us going back because it's so challenging. So are you literally driving for 30 hours straight or do you take breaks? Yeah, it's a great question. So the race truck is driving for 30 hours straight. Uh, it comes into the pit. Our pits are one minute long. We take 70 gallons of race fuel. Um, the driver and navigator take some different gels and fuel for their body, much like an, uh, a triathlete would. Uh, we, we have a very similar um, fueling strategy for our bodies as triathletes because we're, we're going for long periods of time. Um, an average driver stint for us is about eight to nine hours. So my stint will be eight to nine hours come next Friday, and then I'll pass it off to a secondary driver. He'll drive eight to nine hours, then he'll pass it off to a third driver that'll take it to the finish. So we have three drivers, three navigators. Okay, and are you ever taking a turn as the like co-driver, or the co-pilot, other person in the vehicle? No, so for me personally, you're a driver or you're a navigator, you normally don't do this. Um, me, I, I have some sort of equilibrium issue and control issue that I can't be a navigator. I throw up immediately. <laughs> um, navigators are a special breed. Uh, we couldn't do what we do without them and they're hardcore. They're expert mechanics for field repairs in the middle of nowhere. Um, they keep us on track with our navigating our race. Um, they can be psychologists at times to keep keep you, your spirits up if if we're down on time or something. So they play a very vital, critical role. Well, they probably would say the same thing about drivers. Like they, they couldn't, maybe they'd have a harder time being a driver, but they can do, you know, they do what they do really well, but it's hard to switch over. Yeah, so I, I can't speak for a navigator, but I can say that um, navigators prefer specific types of drivers and, um, you want a driver that's going to be fast, but also makes you feel safe. And sometimes when you're, you're, if you're, if you're out of control, you're, you're going to lose some, some navigators, um, because you know, their, their life is on the line, just like yours is. So right. you want to make sure that, uh, you know, you're, you're at that ragged edge that allows you to win the race, but that you're not putting yourself and somebody else's life at risk. Um, and that's a big thing because when you're racing in the middle of, you know, a third world country through Baja in the middle of nowhere, if we roll and we go end over end, let's say eight times and destroy the truck and one of us is passed out or one of us has a compound broken arm and we're bleeding, we have to take care of ourselves. There's no ambulance there. There's no trackside support. There's no trackside hospital there. Like we're on our own. We have a, a first aid kit. We're doing our own tourniquets, um, and hopefully we can get a helicopter out to to rescue us. You know, within that time frame to to save our lives. Well, hopefully no tourniquets next week. <laughs> that's that's always the plan. Right. That's always the plan. Um, well, speaking of injuries, talk to me about um, maybe not necessarily an injury, but what's been a setback for you in your career, and how did you push through it? Yeah, so um, you're kind of you're kind of poking the bear with that question. Um, well, if it's bad juju to talk about, no, it's know. not. It's not bad juju to talk about it. It's a, it's actually a timely question. So, um, unfortunately, I've had uh, during COVID, I had uh, a pretty nasty training injury uh, on a mountain bike and uh, 
had to get off uh, up in the hills and hit my head pretty hard, knocked myself out, and was dealing with kind of concussion syndrome-esque issues. Um, and, and within that month, you know, your brain is very sensitive within, you know, the first six weeks after a brain injury. And I actually was, got back on the bike too early and was unstable and had another fall um, and hit my head again. So I had two concussions back to back within a three week period. And, um, you know, ever since then, I've just been battling um, some really challenging um, brain fog issues, cognitive issues, um, just not being able to sleep like a lot of, and, and the brain's a real tricky thing, right? And so I've, I've explored all these alternative medicines and um, I get my brain and my body feeling okay to race and then I'll go race and then it's like I'm back to square one. And with your brain, injuries are compounding. So when you get your first concussion, the second one's easier to get. The third one's easier to get. The fourth one's easier to get. And so I found myself constantly um, trying to get myself back to a level where I could compete and I would feel good and then I'd go and race. And our sport, we see anywhere from two to five Gs with every whoop that we hit in rough, in rough conditions. And um, the best way I can describe it is you have your, your brain and your, your, your brain matter and it has like an insulator to it and then you have your skull. Well, every time my brain would jar, my brain was ricocheting off of my skull and creating these like micro concussions. So at the end of the race, I could have had a hundred micro concussions on top of the compounding effect of the concussions that I've had um, from these unfortunate mountain bike crashes. And uh, the recovery has been just really, really challenging and painful. Um, brain injuries are, are unique. There's a whole community out there of support, but because it's not a cut with stitches or a broken arm or a blown out knee and it, people can't see it, um, the perception is that, that I'm fine as a driver, but the reality is I'm dealing with the challenges and the cognitive difficulties um, every day of, not, of, you know, dealing with just normal function in life from a brain injury. So um, I, I decided that uh, this Baja 1000 is going to be my last, um, my last uh, race in the driver's seat. Uh, I'm committed to my health and uh, I'm going to, I'm not claiming retirement. Uh, I'm claiming that I need a solid year uh, outside of the, the cockpit to really see if I can get my brain to recover because racing hasn't allowed it to recover at that level where I could live a normal life. Um, and so I'm going to step back and uh, I think it's going to be the, the, the hardest thing of my, my racing career is to really take this program that I've put every ounce of energy and time and passion into for the last nine years and step away from the driver, driver's seat. Um, the driver's seat is really the reward for all the hard work we do during the week. Um, but I'm excited for the new challenge to, to get my health back in order and to manage the team and to be able to provide an opportunity for one of my talent racers to come up and fill the seat. So I'm kind of passing the, the baton along, giving someone else the opportunity. And uh, hopefully I can, I can spend some more time taking care of my brain health. Well, kudos to you for knowing what you need to do for your body and acting on it rather than 
because I feel like it'd be easy to just keep pushing through and you know potentially cause a larger setback. Yeah, I mean, as as athletes, as you know, we we're used to pushing through challenges, uh, setbacks, um, and trying to overcome those things. And you get to a point where, hey, I'm not seeing that progress. And doctors are saying, hey, this leads your condition leads to early onset of dementia and Alzheimer's. It's like I've got a wife, three kids. Like nothing could be, you know, more important than focusing on that recovery first. You only get one brain. Right. And you got to take very good care of it. Right. Um, so you mentioned wife and three kids. How old are your kids? Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, wife and three kids. I've got a eight-year-old daughter, a 12-year-old daughter, and a 14-year-old son. Um, there, I have one at each school. I have an elementary school, a middle school, and a high schooler now. So, and they, uh, they, they love the sport. They love to support their father. And, uh, my son is actually, uh, on his mountain bike team at the high school and, and loves, uh, cycling sports and, uh, using his Maxxis tires. Love to hear it. Um, so let's talk about, um, the digital wellness side of things. So do, do any of your kids have cell phones? Uh, they do actually. Um, it's, uh, it's always a, so cell phones for adolescents or young, young kids, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Um, and it's the challenge that every parent has to go through and it's at what stage, you know, how early do you give them the cell phone? How, how long do you wait to give them a cell phone? And there's a lot of peer pressure. I can tell you firsthand, there's a lot of peer pressure to give your kids a cell phone early. And with my oldest, my 14 year old, we waited and we waited and we waited and it almost got to a point where you, whether we justified it this way or not, you feel like you're, you're, you're giving, you're almost at a disservice to your, your child for not giving them a cell phone because that's how kids communicate and socialize today. So it's like, Hey, if my son Jaden doesn't have a cell phone, he's missing out on his buddies going to the movies. Um, he's missing out on, you know, this, this activity or that activity, because that's how they all communicate. And that's, that's kind of the, the point where we decided, okay, you know, Jaden needs a cell phone. We're going to give him a cell phone. Um, and so we waited until they got to junior high. Um, we waited uh, all through elementary school, uh, through fifth grade, they didn't have cell phones. And then once they got to middle school, uh, we felt like it was time and that they were responsible enough to, I don't know if they're ever responsible enough, but we felt like they were responsible enough to have a, a mobile phone to communicate. And so what, what has it been like for them to have phones from, I mean, middle schools, I mean, I don't think, he, I definitely didn't have a phone when I was in middle school. I imagine you didn't either. No. Um, what, 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 what's been the experience like since they've had their cell phones? Have you, you know, and, and what's the, the dynamic like in the house? Yeah, so there's definitely parameters that, that we've set. So um, you have to turn your phone in every night at 9 o'clock so they can't have it and so they can't be on it all night doing whatever they're doing. So they turn their phone in. Um, we try to limit their screen time as much as we can. Um, as we know, even for adults, uh, cell phones are a major distraction of productivity. Um, and so, you know, basic stuff. Room has to be clean. Your homework has to be done. Uh, before you can be on your phone kind of thing, uh, just to keep, keep their level of productivity up. Um, so we have those kind of parameters in the house. 
And then is it like at you know, things like dinner time, do you make sure that the phones are away or are you okay with them at the table? Absolutely not. So uh, I kind of come from old school, traditional value family. I did personally. And like that dinner time is the time where you communicate face to face. And young kids today aren't the greatest at communicating face to face. They're really great at communicating like this. And that's where they build their confidence in communication is like this. And so... Um, if you come to the dinner table, that phone better be in your pocket and you better not pull it out. And there's nothing more important than engaging with your family at that time. Um, not, you know, anything that happens on the phone can wait. Even if it's a business call for me, it can wait. You know, it's what, what's dinner? 30, 30 minutes of our time where we're engaging and enjoying conversation and learning about everyone's day and that sort of thing. So you mentioned that phones are now how kids, young people, are socializing and how they're building confidence. What are your thoughts on that? And what are they, how, like, how are they actually, like, what, what means are they using to socialize on their phones? Um, so I, I'm definitely not an expert in the means of adolescent communication, but- Just I, in your observation. Yeah, in, yeah. in my observation, you know, they, they communicate on, on Snapchat a lot. Um, they, there's a new app that they use uh, called Gas that they've been, utilizing a lot lately and that one I'm actually in favor of um, but uh, their, their means of communication is that's the only way that they communicate is through DM direct message um, and these these various apps so what do you think about that as someone who grew up when this wasn't really a, a thing so I, as, as a parent I've, I've never been a fan of the phones I think they're they're, they're a huge distraction to productivity. I think that they're a, they're a way to avoid the necessary things that you should be doing in life. It's just like, oh, I don't want to do this, so I'm just going to get buried into social media and looking at useless things, right? It's such a time suck. Um, and for, for me growing up, that, that time was spent riding my bike in the neighborhood. Um, uh, I'm going to probably get ridiculed for this, but riding my rollerblades all over town, you know, riding my skateboard. I was doing things where I was out getting physical activity. I wasn't sitting at home on any kind of technology. I mean, when I was a kid, they had the very first Nintendo came out and I, I had it, but I rarely used it. I wasn't like addicted to it. I was addicted to being physically active, jumping my BMX bike, you know, going to the skate park on my skateboard, that sort of thing. So talk to me about your own personal use of your phone and social media, because as a pretty prominent athlete in this sport, like I, I know social media is like a, a big way to promote yourself and your work. How is it on the work side and how do you balance it with the, the personal side where you're you know, consuming or whatever for, for yourself? Yeah, it, it's tough because it's like this necessary evil. You have to be in social media now as, as a professional athlete. Um, all of our partners and sponsors are expecting you to be there. They're expecting you to create content. They're expecting you to kind of document what you're doing with their brands and how you're utilizing them and that sort of thing. So um, it's definitely a necessary evil in my eyes. Um, so you have to be there. And for me, um, the business side of racing, um, you know, consumes a lot of time. And so it's it's hard for me to to, to balance the time I spend on social media um, versus the time I really need to spend running the business and training as an athlete 
and those sort of things. Uh, fortunately for us, um, we have uh, a social media manager and a marketing manager that can help take a lot of that content creation off of my plate and push you know, certain reels my way that I can post. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I'd say I, it's 25% that my marketing manager creates, but my page is 75% who, who I am as an athlete. Um, and I've, I've made a personal choice to not post a ton of stuff about my personal life. Um, I want to protect my personal life. I want to protect my children, my wife, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that there's different ways to do it. There's a lot of people that are very public about their personal life. I just have chosen to be more professional on social media. And that's been my personal opinion. So you mentioned that you and your family are kind of, you have your eyes on screen time. Do you ever look at your screen time numbers on your phone, on your own phone? Um, I do. Yeah. So I, I think I get notifications on a weekly basis yeah. that says your screen time's up, your screen time's down, that sort of thing. And it's usually indicative of how, how busy my schedule is and, and what I'm doing. Um, but, uh, do you mind if we take a look at them now? I'll, I'll look at mine as well. We can do like a little, uh, <laughs> a little side by side here. Okay. Let's do this. <coughs> how do I find it? It's in settings. Okay. Screen time. Screen time. What do you got? What do you see? All right. So three hours and 47 minutes. That's not bad. Is, is the daily average. That's not bad. Mine, I'm at five hours and 55 minutes. I will asterisk that because I've been driving and use navigation on my phone. So I count into it. Okay. But so let's hit, hit where it says see all activity. See all activity. And okay. what, what's, your, what's your number one app and how much time does it say? <laughs> Um, it's, uh, Instagram. And how much time is it for the week? 14 minutes. 14 minutes. That's it? Yeah. What's your second most used one? Uh, mail. And how many is that? 11 minutes. So this, these, the stats are going to be thrown off. So I'm in like, like what I call tornado season. Like it's like the thrash to get to the biggest race of the year. So I'm not on my phone leading up to this race. I'm counting on him to post a lot of the social media and I'm doing a lot of other stuff to get us prepared. So this might not be indicative of my, my screen time is probably higher than this, but wait for, wait, wait, hold on. Go back to, I think you clicked it just for today. Go, go to, uh, can I see? Oh, sorry. I did. 14 minutes is probably today. That was. Yeah. So what does it say for the week? That's what Five hours and 25 minutes okay. for the week. That seems more. <laughs> more um, so tech, text message is six hours and 28 minutes in text messages. Five hours and 25 minutes in Instagram. How do, when you see that, like how, do, does, how does, that, does that, is that surprising to you or not really? Um, so text messages, no, because I conduct a lot of business through text messages. So six hours and 28 minutes, that seems, yeah, that I means I've been doing a lot of business via text. But Five hours and 25 minutes on, on Instagram, that seems like a lot of uh, wasted time. Right. If you look at like what I've posted and like what I've commented on and like what my engagement level is, that's a lot of time. Right. In other words, like the amount of time that you've put into it versus the actual productive output. Exactly. I don't think they're necessarily in No. There. Right. Well, that makes sense, I think. For, yeah. It's probably the same for everyone. Yeah. Um, so there's a study that came out last year that's... Uh, just was kind of like 
polling at the average American. And according to this study, uh, the average American will spend five years of their life on social media over the course of their life. <laughs> so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and if it's something that is alarming or if it makes sense or what your thoughts are. So uh, it's not alarming to me. That, that, those, that data does not surprise me. Um, again, I think social media is kind of a necessary evil. But I think it also has led to, and I don't have statistics on this. This is just kind of a wild guess. I think it's, it's led to um, a lot of mental health issues, especially during COVID. Um, I think you're seeing mental health talk, talked about more regularly than it ever has. And I feel like that there's a correlation back to all the comparisons that are done in social media. Um, everyone's kind of posting their best self in social media and you're not getting you know, the, the bad parts or the dark parts of their life and what they're doing to overcome it. You're just seeing you know, them on top of the podium, right? Um, and you're not seeing all the hard work and the challenges that they had to fight through mentally or physically to get on top of the podium. And so it leaves this like impression, especially with the young people that like, you know, they're not successful or they can't be successful because it, it makes them think that like, that's so like easily attainable. So it creates a lot of self-deception. Yeah, I, I agree. What do you think? So this is kind of why I was interested to hear about your children's experience. What, what do you think is something that we can do as a society to help foster a healthier relationship to phones and social media with the, the younger generation? I mean, it sounds like you're instilling good values into your own children, but the I mean, average. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to instill good values with our kids. Um, you know, I think there's, there's, there's so much negative energy out on social media. And so, you know, I, the, the only way, I don't think you're going to necessarily control what the content is, but you can, with young people, you can control the amount of time that they're on social media. So, you know, perhaps some sort of like a timer that shuts it off. I, I actually was doing some research this week for something else. And I read that the Chinese, so, so Snapchat was actually developed in China. And I read that the Chinese version of Snapchat only allows um, adolescents to, to utilize it for one hour a day. And it automatically shuts off on their phone. The Chinese also control the type of content that the adolescent Chinese are able to utilize it for versus the American version of Snapchat. Um, are you talking about, I, 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 I think I've read something similar. Are you talking about TikTok? Oh, I'm sorry, not TikTok. Not, I yes. didn't want you to keep saying Snapchat yes. if it's like actually. It, if it's you mean, TikTok, yeah. yes. Yes, yeah. it's TikTok. Yeah, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, so, so then there was this poll that was done. It was like, the average adolescents on TikTok, based on the content that they're consuming in China, only one hour a day, they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's like, I want to be an archaeologist. I want to be a doctor. I want to be, you know, all these like professions. And then you come to the, to the U.S. where they don't have those parameters on TikTok. And you ask an American adolescent, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know what the number one thing was? I want to be an influencer. Well, I mean, you and I both know that an influencer isn't a really uh, staying profession for the bottom 99%. Maybe 1% can be successful at it, like a lot of other professions, but it's not something that uh, has a lot of staying power. 
long term. And it's not helping society in any way. <laughs> it's, not help, it's not helping society anyway. If anything, it's creating more to that that you know mental health issues, the you know the comparisons, and you know all of these other downsides to social media. Right. It's feeding into the machine that. Yep. I mean, I think we all are feeding into it by using it, even if it's for work. But I mean, especially as an influencer, it's especially <laughs> harmful. I feel like we could go down this for, road for a while. I do want to talk about driving sure. as well. So if you could just talk to me about your experience uh, with distracted driving and what your approach is to distractions in the car when you're driving yourself, because you drive for a living mm -hmm. and obviously you spend time on the actual road. So curious to hear all about that. Yeah, so distracting, dri distracted driving is is big for me. Um, I have a personal experience with it. Um, last year in February, I was driving my personal Honda truck, uh, stock Honda truck, and it was rear-ended by a gal that was texting going 45 miles an hour, and I was at a complete stop. Um, and I can tell you that it further damaged my brain. I had whiplash. Um, I had all of my same concussion syndrome effects long after and uh, it was an, it was another battle that I had to fight you know trying to heal a brain that was already wounded um, the I was hit so hard luckily I had I was in a, a very safe Honda vehicle um, and I had my seatbelt on uh, but I was at a dead stop and I was hit so hard that the whiplash threw my sunglasses into the back seat of my truck so you can imagine going like this and then throwing back and my sunglasses getting hurled into the back seat. I couldn't find them. I was looking all over for them at the crash site and I found them in the back seat. Um, so that's a personal experience that I had uh, from somebody that was texting and driving. So before, before you go on, how did you know that they were distracted and texting? Was that proven or um, it did they admit it? It actually was. Um, they, through the police report actually uh, divulged that that was the, the cause through an investigation. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's how I was able to read it. They didn't say it at the time of the accident. Sure. But I mean, when you have two vehicles stopped at a stoplight and somebody hits you without hitting the brakes, there was no brakes, no there was skid no marks. skid marks, there was no nothing. I mean, you're, you're distracted by something, whether it's texting or something else, you're distracted if you don't hit the brakes. Right. So not that many people have a personal experience like you do. Fortunately, you made it out okay overall. Sure. Um, what, how, how has that affected your approach to driving? Yeah, so it's definitely made me more aware. I think in today's society, I'll be the first to admit that we are the most distracted we've ever been in a vehicle. The vehicles have more technology in them. Um, they, you know, some vehicles have 12 inch screens now that have all kinds of data flowing at you. And, you know, from radio stations to GPS to, um, I think you can watch videos on some now. Um, and so we're more distracted than we've ever been, not to mention your phone ringing, text message popping up, whatever else is going on your phone in addition to driving. And so I think that the, the challenge of distracted driving is, is real for all of us, including myself. And after getting hit in that accident, it, it, it's kind of a wake-up call to say, hey, Jeff, that text message isn't important. It can wait. That phone call isn't important. It can wait. That sort of thing. So would you say that since the crash, you've been good about not using your phone in the car? I mean, 
let's just be honest with you. Um, I have a very busy life and there's a lot going on and I'm not perfect with not texting while driving, um, but I'm definitely more aware of it now than I ever have been. And I wanna make sure that I'm setting a good example for my children um, because I have a 14 year old that's almost 15 and he'll be driving in about a year. So I wanna make sure that I set that example because uh, you know, especially a 16 year old driver is the most deadly on the streets if they start texting and driving with the lack of experience they have of controlling an automobile. Right. Yeah, you want to set a good example for your kids, and you also want to make sure that you stay as safe as you, you control all the variables in your wheelhouse to keep you safe. Uh, so you know, you'd hate to be in a crash that was caused by your distraction, right? <laughs> for sure, <laughs> that'd be horrible. Yeah, yeah, I want to be able to what I say control control the controllables that are within my power and my ability. Right. Um, do you, are you aware of slash, do you use the, the driving focus feature on your iPhone? Uh, I'm not aware of it. Tell me about it. Are Educate me. All right. So take out your phone again. So basically it's, it's a feature. Do you know about this? No, actually. Um, well, good. You can listen. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so it's, it's right above screen time. Uh, ironically, uh, well, actually they probably did that on purpose, <laughs> but, um, focus, focus. So if you hit the plus button. You can add the driving focus, which will turn on automatically when you're in your car, either by connecting to Bluetooth or your CarPlay if you have it in your car, or it can automatically just detect that, detect that you're in a car, and it will silence all notifications coming to your phone so that the temptation isn't even really there. That's great. Um, so if you want to use it, I know, so it's, I've talked to a bunch of people who are, you know, they, they have busy lives and just doing a quick response to someone can really sort of change the course of their colleague or whoever's day in terms yep. of productivity. Um, but I do, I mean, the, the point here is that even though that message is important in the work world, if it resulted in you hitting someone or someone hitting you, some crash that could really change the course of your day or life, it's not worth sending it while you're driving. For sure. So it's, it's worth... That this. productivity in the office isn't worth you know, somebody else's right. life. In the moment, it seems worthwhile. But yeah. if, until something happens, it's, uh, or if something happens, it's not worth it. Yeah, it happens all the time. Arnie will send me a text and say, hey, is this real okay to post? And I'll proof it real quick. Approved. Right. You know, just so his workflow can continue and I'm not bottlenecking his workflow. Right. It's a real thing in business. I mean, it's tough. Yeah, I know it's tough. And it's like, you have to weigh the, the, the pros and cons. And I think... You know the the cons since you've been affected directly by it, um, but yeah. So it's uh, did you get it set up? I did. Yep. Sweet. And so my my favorite thing about it is that it can, you can have it auto reply to text messages that says you can set it up however you want, but it can it'll text and and it'll respond to a text that comes through while you're driving and say that I'm driving and I'll respond to you when I get to my destination. Okay. Which is cool for. Well, it lets the person know that you're in a car and your lack of response is not you ignoring them. Yep. And it, uh, it, I think it helps spread the conversation about the importance of driving distraction-free. For sure. Yeah, I think this is great. Well, thank you for being open to, uh, to using it. I'm curious to, to hear what your experience is like. Yeah, um, hopefully Arnie doesn't, uh, doesn't hold them up too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so... 
I will wrap this up in just a couple of minutes, but I want to hear, um, Jeff, what would you say to folks who are, cause it, it's, you have a direct experience with distracted driving. Um, and I think that really helps you with your awareness, but mm-hmm. a lot of people don't and they're really bad about using their phones in the car mm-hmm. or just being distracted by other things. What would you say to try to get through to them the message that it's not that important, whatever they're doing, that's, you know, taking their eyes off the road? Yeah, I think you have to step back and and look at, you know, what's what's the impact of that decision if you were to take somebody else's life? You know, look at worst case scenario and then kind of back into it. Is that text message that important? And I think the real answer is no. 99%, 99.9% of text messages can wait. Nothing in this world is so important that you could put yourself in a position where you potentially could take somebody else's life. It's not that important. That text message can wait. Can I get you to say like that you'll promise to uh, drive distraction free? Yeah, sure. I don't uh, mind saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Jeff Proctor and I promise to distract. I'm Jeff Proctor and I promise to drive distracted free. Sweet. Um, any closing thoughts, Jeff? Um, it could be any, literally anything about this conversation, things you're looking forward to. Uh, obviously, you have a big race coming up, so that's probably front of the, front of the mind. But Yeah, we're, we're always looking forward to uh, putting this, this Honda factory off-road team uh, on the top step of the box and uh, you know, being able to represent all of our partners and um, sponsors uh, at the highest level. So special thanks to, to Maxis for making the the great greatest tires in off-road and uh, KMC wheels and Fox shocks and everybody else that uh, sports us. Sweet. And one final question that I just remembered, where, where and when are you happiest in life now? Like what, what's your, where, where do you find joy? What are you doing? Yeah. So I, I'm definitely happiest in life when I'm helping someone else, uh, helping someone else succeed helping someone else uh, overcome a challenge. Um, I think that that's where you get the most um, self-gratification is being able to give back to someone that could use your help, your skills, etc. I'm sure you have a lot of those examples from managing and owning this team, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's opportunities for us as human beings every day. It just comes down to, you know, making that choice to sacrifice, you know, your own interest to, to maybe take an extra five minutes to help this lady change her tire or, you know, whatever it might be, um, you know, show the patience to, uh, teach somebody a new skill in the office and that sort of thing. Cool. Well, Jeff, you've been really generous with your time on a busy day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Great chatting with you. Likewise. Hey, thank you for listening to my conversation with Jeff Proctor. Hope you learned a thing or two. Hope you enjoyed it. And if not, come back next week and maybe you'll learn something. And by next week, I mean in two weeks for the next episode because these come out bi-weekly every two weeks. I feel very fortunate to have met Jeff and to have spent some time with him. I got to meet some of his staff and I hope that came through in our conversation that he is a great guy and spoke very well on both his experience uh, as a professional racer and as a 
person who is dealing with the same challenges of distractions on the phone as we all are experiencing. And that's the point, is that this is something that we are all facing and a challenge that is not easily solved unless we all get on board with the idea that we should not be on our phones in the car whatsoever because there's no reason to be. So with that in mind, I hope you all consider turning on Driving Focus It is a feature that is enabled through the settings app on your phone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android. For instructions, head on over to eyesupride.com slash resources or reach out to me specifically if you have any questions. I'd be happy to help you get set up. Driving focus or driving mode is just one small step that you can take to help prevent distractions in the car, help you be more focused on what's right in front of you while you're driving, and hopefully extends into some greater awareness in your everyday life on technology. Anywho, thank you so much for listening this time, and we'll see you next time with Pat Foster. Pat Foster will be in two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe. Please leave a positive review if you believe that this was a positive experience for you. Follow Eyes Up Ride on Instagram and stay tuned. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.